We have the distinct pleasure of having Timothy Frazier today with us, in addition to having been the designated federal officer of the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future. He's been a senior advisor and consultant for USDOE, the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Dick Stein Shapiro. He was appointed to the role of federal officer of the BRC by Secretary Stephen Chu in 2010. Tim, thanks so much for your time and uh, being here with us today. Pleasure. Uh, to start off, uh, as BRC federal officer, you were responsible for all aspects of the commission, including providing technical support and information <coughs> to commission members. How would you assess your experience as part of the BRC? And if you could do it again, is there anything you might have done differently? Well, uh, thanks, Alan. So my experience at, at the BRC was uh, one of the best experiences of my career. Um, certainly when you've got 15 big personalities, very well-informed folks uh, that participate in that kind of presidential commission, uh, you learn a lot of things, you make a lot of contacts, you're exposed to a lot of different um, events. Uh, traveling around the country and then traveling around the world with them was, uh, was interesting. It was challenging also from the aspect of uh, just the pure logistics to pull all of that off was, was pretty difficult. Um, if I was asked to do it again, I would not hesitate. It was a great experience overall. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's helped. Um, it's helped in my career. What I'm doing now. Um, great experience. What do you believe are the present congressional attitudes, uh, perceptions, or maybe misperceptions and debates on the waste issue in general? I think the the issue nowadays with the congressional attitudes is you've got two distinct attitudes. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Republicans in the House, and uh, you've got I should say Republicans and Democrats in the House because they, they do have a large support on the Democratic side in the House yeah. for for moving forward with nuclear waste. Something there's something Jacques Mountain yeah. on the Senate side. You've got uh, fairly broad support for doing something, um, and they see Yucca Mountain as part of that. They, the Senate, see Yucca Mountain as part of that solution, but they're willing to look at other things and move forward other things while Yucca Mountain is is still being resolved inside the Congress. Uh, Senator Alexander is always careful to say that uh, I have always heard him say that you know, Yucca Mountain is the law of the land and Yucca Mountain should be pursued. Uh, but he also brings up the point that we're going to need an additional repository. Hmm. And that effort to cite that additional repository ought to be moving on as well. Hmm. Okay. Given this deadlock over Yucca, and you've spent many years working on waste management issues here in the States, once Senator Reid steps down, do you expect any major changes? Is there anything that can be done to overcome the impasse? So I, I, don't, I don't expect that whenever Senator Reid leaves the Senate that there will be a, a tidal wave of change. I think it's going to be uh, very much along the same lines. And, and it's really two reasons. One is the Senate, I believe that the Senate uh, is, is looking to keep um, the conversation going. So, you know, whether whether they'll be able to get funding just to complete the Yucca Mountain licensing review, 
it might be possible after Reed's gone. I mean, keeping in mind that the licensing review is a long way from authorizing enough funding to actually build Yucca Mountain. Uh, I think that if, if they could take a step that says we'll authorize funding for NRC in conjunction with the House to look at continuing the licensing process, then the House folks would say, okay, well, we'll put money in for uh, consolidated storage or consent-based siting development. So that there's a path where they can both move forward, understanding that there would still be some bigger vote later whenever appropriations were actually requested to construct Yucca. So on this topic of consent-based approaches and, and much mm. of your current work is, is focused on, on this issue. Could you talk in more detail about that and, and the process towards narrow, narrowing a, a clearer definition for consent-based siting? Well, I think a clear definition of consent-based siting is not going to be an easy thing. Mm -hmm. I think at best we can hope for like a fuzzy definition. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and here's, and here, here's why. Uh, you know, the Blue Ribbon Commission, when we brought it up, uh, it was in the context of what they'd done in Sweden, what they'd done in Finland, uh, in, in moving forward and getting agreement from the locales um, in exchange for community benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we thought that it would be amazing if you could actually have two uh, communities in the United States competing mm -hmm. to host, which is what happened in Sweden, mm -hmm. competing to host a deep geological repository. What we didn't get into, uh, and we didn't get into it because it was we didn't have enough time and it just seemed like a, a, a rat hole to go down, was trying to define what consent-based siting was. We recognized, or the commission recognized, that there was, uh, or there were going to be a broad, uh, broad differences from community to community on what consent-based siting would be, might look like, uh, how it would be implemented, um, but, but the thing that that we are, uh, the, the thing that I believe is going to move it forward, the the farthest is getting communities and states involved in a conversation to try to see what they think consent-based siting is. So right now you've got people at the policy level in the United States government trying to figure out what the hell consent-based siting is, and it's really going to be driven, we think, from the ground up because consent-based siting in Texas. Is not going to be the same as consent-based siting in New Mexico. It's not going to be the consent-based siting in in state Y. Um, the the framework I think is important. Uh, we talked in the BRC report about a binding legal uh, agreement with a state um, with certain off ramps as they go down uh, the path to building a deep geological repository or a consolidated storage site. Um, and I think those those things are obviously still in play. Uh, you know, the Department of Energy has a, a fairly big, aggressive effort that they've started this summer. They're doing uh, eight meetings. First one's March 29th in Chicago. The next one's Atlanta, April the 11th. Then it's it's on their website. There's uh, six others um, spread out through the end of July, where they're going to try to help answer this issue from a community's perspective on what's involved. Okay. So you mentioned some of these uh, other countries where, where two communities are competing against each other for, uh, I guess, the opportunity to host a site. 
how are, how are some of these international lessons applicable for the United States, <clears throat> and and how are they not? <laughs> so it's interesting, and it's a great question. Uh, the the one the one that made the the visit that we, that we did that made the largest impact on the commissioners of the BRC was the visit to Sweden. So we went to Forsmark and Oskarsham, both okay. both places that were being considered, and um, talked to the folks there. But I think one of the distinct differences between the Swedish governmental structure and the United States governmental structure is the municipalities in Sweden are there, there's no one there's no state level like mm -hmm. organization in between the municipalities and the federal Swedish government okay. so it would be like a state in the United States deciding to do it mm -hmm. but there they're much smaller much more controlled that there didn't have to be an extra step I see so it's it's not exactly apples and apples it's close if you can if we can get a community and a state engaged to to be involved um, you know Finland I think they were a little more forceful in their approach uh, but the Swedish approach was really the one that we thought was uh, a good one to follow and by the way the benefits for both Oscar Sham and Forsmark were, were pretty were pretty good um, commitments and funding blah 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 mm -hmm. so obviously in, in, in Sweden you, you don't have sort of that regional or provincial or prefectural authority that you have to deal with. Does it make sense then in the in the United States to initiate discussions with states first <clears throat> before communities then if, if, if this is an issue? So we, we talked we we have talked a lot about and this is like the big we have talked a lot about whether you go top down yeah. or bottom up. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there have been uh, I think there was one state which will remain nameless, <laughs> that uh, kind of tried the top-down approach, okay. um, and it ended up not working. Uh, I feel like it's got to be a, a bottoms-up, because if it's, if it's top-down, you'll get the state buying in, and then there's going to be pressure from the state down towards the communities to find a community that's willing to host mm -hmm. it. Uh, it's a lot it's a lot more equitable mm -hmm. if you have the communities pushing up because mm -hmm. the states can always say no um, and but you know there are you know there are communities scattered across the United States that are very interested and have been working with their states mm -hmm. I mean WCS is clearly one of them for consolidated storage well on this topic of consolidated storage uh, so while a permanent solution is being identified, uh, what are the pros and cons for consolidated interim storage and, and how might it help or harm efforts towards a uh, geological repository? So there are people on both sides of this issue. Uh, the, the pros you hear are the ability to uh, demonstrate that you can move fuel uh, the Department of Energy has stated in their strategy paper from January 2013 that the shutdown sites, the decommissioned reactor sites, where the where the fuel is the only thing there, stranded. In, stranded, yep. Uh, in the dry casks uh, would be would be first on the list. So you could uh, you could clean those sites off. Um, there's been some talk about <clears throat> if the department was were to take uh, title to the fuel, then that would 
and move it to a consolidated storage site, that would start reducing the liability that they're incurring for not um, for not completing for not performing under the standard contract. So what they're being sued for is partial breach of the contract for non-performance. Mm -hmm. Some folks have made the financial case that if you start moving enough of the fuel, you would eventually, and what's, what is, um, what's debatable is how long into the future before you recover your costs because you're no longer you know, wrecking up your liabilities. The other pro is uh, consolidated storage is much, much simpler than a repository. Sure. So if you're going to make progress, uh, consolidated storage seems to be the way to go because you can get it done in maybe 15 years um, or less. I mean, if you really wanted to push it, you, you could. Um, and then the idea of, of helping or hurting uh, the geological repository or deep geological repository siting effort or development effort I have not been one that's been supportive of putting linkage to between consolidated storage and repository development okay. into into law. Okay. Um, I think that as the states move forward to develop uh, consent-based agreements with the federal government, I think at that point they would be able to write in what their requirements are <laughs> in regards to uh, progress on a deep geological repository. For example, uh, the states at the state's sole discretion, they get to decide if there's being progress made. And the, the day that they decide that there's not being any progress made, they can shut down uh, the receipt of material into their state, the rec receipt of spent nuclear fuel or waste into their state. Um, so on this subject of, of stranded fuel, and, and of course you, you have stranded fuel once the plant is shut down and, and decommissioned, um, and, and you've had in, in recent years sort of premature shutdowns sure. in, in the United States, and, and of course you've got uh, sort of an accelerated pace of shutdowns, decommissioning throughout the world, mostly in Europe, North America. Um, does this impact... Uh, waste management efforts in the United States significantly? D does it create greater urgency for this issue? Obviously, you have stranded spent fuel, but then you also have the waste from the decommissioning projects and, and efforts. I, I, think it, I think it puts uh, a little pressure on the nuclear waste side because now we're getting more and more decommissioned plants. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when we did the BRC report, there were six or seven, and now there's nine or ten, mm -hmm. and perhaps will be more. Um, so clearly now we're at, you've got communities that were getting the benefit of an operating power reactor to their economy, uh, communities and, and counties and such. Now suddenly that's gone, and all they've got is this nuclear waste sitting there and these dry casks. Uh, I think there will be additional pressure to do something to move those out and move them out more quickly. Um, the, the other issue is that at all of the decommissioned sites, there's, there's a quantity of greater than class C waste you know, from the decommissioning uh, that's going to need a home too. And, and everybody, I, everyone seems to uh, recognize that the GTCC is there, mm -hmm. um, but of course, you, you know, there's still no solution for greater than class C waste either. Mm -hmm. 
although you could certainly make the you could certainly make the argument that if you're going to clean out uh, Maine Yankee, for example, you're going to have to take the spent fuel and the GTCC to get it, you know, to be able to turn it back over for development or whatever. Um, does allowing does delaying decommissioning kind of alleviate this issue of greater than class C waste? Kind of well, yeah, I don't know. If you, if you leave, if you leave sure. the reactor components where they are, then yeah. you're, when you're fine. Like decay. Yeah. Um, does the fiscal year 2017 budget provide any clues or hints about the direction of waste management in the United States? Well, it, I think what it does show, uh, what, the, what Obama's budget request shows, uh, is a continued emphasis on consent-based siting. Um, I think it, it clearly shows that the department is going to pursue consent-based siting processes. Uh, the development and potentially the implementation when they feel like they have the authority to implement. But it's, it also shows that they're looking at, uh, you know, there's money in there for, to look at geological disposal media, and there's just all kinds of funding in there to support the entire effort. But the biggest thing, uh, the biggest thing is the money, and I think it's about 20 million, you'd mm -hmm. have to look. Um, to support consent-based siting effort going forward in 2017, mm -hmm. including, by the way, some monies to communities that might be interested mm -hmm. in, in hosting it. Okay. Um, so part of the budget, as you said, would be examining various geological media and, and creating options. And there's been a lot of chatter recently about deep borehole R&D in North Dakota. I believe the budget mentioned something about $80 million allocated for this effort. Could you tell us your thoughts about this initiative and any technical policy or public acceptance issues that may arise from it? Two things. One of them is <clears throat> the latest uh, dust up over the deep borehole R&D project that was in, it was in rugby. Um, and it was, uh, it was a purely an R&D thing. Uh, however, everybody, everyone knows that the uh, the boreholes would be used for nuclear waste disposal, uh, whether it be in Idaho, whether it be in rugby in, in uh, South Dakota or not, was kind of immaterial to those folks. I, I think that um, it's a good initiative. Uh, we talked about it in the Blue Ribbon Commission report. Uh, it's it's uh, it's um, got a great champion in Secretary Moniz. Uh, for I think for specific types of nuclear waste, it could be very effective. Mm -hmm. um, the, the cesium and strontium capsules you hear them talk about that are out at Richland uh, um, would be a candidate. Uh, vitrified high-level waste that you'd never ever want to ha have to get back or have a need to get back uh, might be um, a reasonable thing to put mm -hmm. in, the, mm -hmm. in the deep borehole because they're only about I think maybe they're like two feet in diameter. Okay. <clears throat> so they're not a large package of assemblies you're trying to put five kilometers deep. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't know any, I don't know any specific public acceptance issues that might arise. Um, I mean, it's nuclear waste and that always generates you sure. know, the, the kind of angst uh, that we saw in uh, and rugby over the whole idea of just doing R&D up there. 
So, Even with boreholes, you would still need a geological repository, correct? Well, so the nice thing about boreholes is it goes far enough, they drill deep enough that they drill into the crystalline rock. Mm -hmm. uh, so depending on how far down you go into the rock, uh, and there is crystalline rock underneath the United States. It just depends on how far you have to go to hit it. Mm -hmm. um, you, In my estimation, you would still need a deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. Mm -hmm. I think you could get a, I think you could dispose of a lot of the defense high-level waste and vitrified waste in boreholes, mm -hmm. but whether you'd want to put uh, spent Spend fuel rods down, I, it would have to be, there'd have to be more analysis done. Okay. Well, one of the conclusions that the BRC made uh, was that the failure to develop a domestic spent fuel storage and disposal strategy has limited U.S. nonproliferation policy choices. In other words, uh, ability to accept foreign spent fuel, which could be a, a boon for U.S. nonproliferation objectives. Thus far, uh, the failure of Yucca and determining a clear back-end solution has generally been considered solely a domestic problem. Can the international imperative be used to inject uh, a greater sense of urgency? I, interesting question. I think that it could be. Uh, or is that irrelevant? I well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's irrelevant because, um, I mean, we've, we, we have, even going back to the Global Nuclear Energy Partnership, we talked about fuel leasing and take back. Mm -hmm. That's not quite what you're getting at here. You're getting at, can we just accept foreign spent nuclear fuel mm -hmm for safe storage, maybe disposal, but at least for safe storage here in the United States to address any nonproliferation concerns. It's, it's interesting, and I, I had not thought about it as being something that would um, try to speed us along. Okay. Um, because what people will tell you is, well, you know, it's all under IAEA safeguards and this, that, and the other thing. So I don't, I don't know that the imperative is there. If there was some country, uh, I mean, think about the UAE that's going to go nuclear. Uh, in that part of the world, perhaps, it might be an, enough of a big deal that the U.S. would say, hey, we'll, we'll take your fuel and protect it. The, the hard part is, and the hard part has always been, uh, we didn't feel like that there was enough, um, we felt like that there was so much so much angst about the United States not being mm -hmm. able to solve its own damn problem. Why would we want to take any fuel from anybody else? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, these days, uh, you know, reprocessing spent nuclear fuel to get reactor-grade uranium or plutonium to make a weapon is not uh, is not the method of choice necessarily mm -hmm. to to get a nuclear weapon anymore. Complicated, but I, I think. You know, at this point, anything that you can use to drive the urgency, because one of the issues that we have, frankly, and we talked about it a lot, is there's a sense of urgency to do something, but what's the driver? Is the driver the fact that we are racking up $500 million a year in liability to the utilities because we're not taking the fuel, or is the driver that we want to do something uh, in our lifetime so that my kids and your new baby doesn't have to deal with spent nuclear fuel <laughs> in 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's, it's intergenerational equity. Um, like it's here now, we ought to do something about it now. Mm -hmm. The other hard thing to do, it's hard to say that you've got a problem. Mm 
I mean, the fuel is sitting at the reactor sites in the United States, decommissioned sites in the United States, mm -hmm. complying with all of the NRC regulations and security requirements. So you have to say it's safe. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to generate, you don't want to say, oh my God, it's not safe because then you've got you know problems all over the place when in fact it is safe. Mm -hmm. And the urgency issue has always been a hard one to get around. Final question. Uh, in Korea, you have a similar situation as in the U.S. with respect to spent fuel management, and arguably the situation is is more acute in Korea than it, than it is here in the United States. Uh, the 123 agreement was signed earlier in 2015, uh, affirming the continued cooperation between the two countries on civil nuclear issues. What do you view as the most probable, most fruitful avenues or areas of cooperation between the U.S. and Korea uh, on the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle? So clearly, uh, the use of uh, the continued cooperation on pyroprocessing, mm -hmm. which has been going on, you know, for years and years and years, um, that's obviously a key aspect. Uh, what What's interesting is that the the my understanding, I think, is correct, is that you know, Korea's reactors pools are going to be full. Let's say it's 2016. You might know the right date. Um, so they're going to have to, if they continue operating their reactors, which they will, they're going to have to develop some kind of dry cast storage or interim storage or consolidated storage somewhere. Uh, and my understanding is that's not an easy thing for them to do. Mm -hmm. um, it, we're going, we, the United States, are going through the same kind of process. So I, I think that there could be some interaction between this is how we're going about it in the United States and this is how we're going about it in Korea and see if there's um, a melding of the minds. The other thing is if, if the Koreans are committed, uh, continue to be committed to pyroprocessing, um, which requires metallic fuel, uh, you know, there could be significant volume reductions in what they have to store if they were allowed to, um, to turn all of their oxide fuel into metal. Um, you know, prior to actually getting a pyroprocessing capability, yep. it would reduce the storage uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Those two issues, pyroprocessing will continue. Uh, there's been a lot of good work done between, you know, Argon West and ANL and and uh, Idaho National Lab and um, Argon, Argon, Big Argon in Chicago. Yep. Uh, and then just lessons learned from, you know, the the same issues. I mean, people are people everywhere. We all have ways we view nuclear waste and the interactions that we have. All right. Well, uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, and it's a very uh, interesting discussion. And uh, hopefully we can uh, continue the dialogue in, in other channels. Good. Thanks. Right. Thank you.